You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve both. And now, let's listen in to this week's sermon. So I have a question for you. I'm going to tell you right out of the chute, if you're here in this audience, I don't want you to hold your hand up and offer to vote on this, okay? But here's my question. Have you ever gone to church with a hypocrite? Got a few kind of people kind of giggling a little bit. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but have you ever gone to church with a hypocrite? See, a criticism of a lot of America's churches are that they are full of hypocrites. And that is usually levied by people who, by the way, don't go to church. But that's one of the reasons they don't, one of the, one of the, the excuses perhaps or reasoning that they use that the church is full of hypocrites. And see, that's not a new criticism. That's a criticism that probably has been levied for, for centuries and centuries. I don't know that I can buy that the church is full of hypocrites. But yet I would think that for most of us, we would admit that we can't necessarily run away from the accusation that there are hypocrites within the church. And I fall back on some very basic logic. And the basic logic is this, that we're all sinners... We all fall short, and as a result of that, hypocrisy can creep into our lives. It can sneak in because perhaps we become proud. Maybe we're at a, in a ministry group or, we've, or things are going well, and we kind of get a little bit full of ourselves. The other thing that can happen to us is, is that there's times hypocrisy can sneak in when, when it, the things always need to be done my way. They always need to be done right. And the way you define right, by the way, is what we think is right, isn't it? You know, I I know in my household, Karen and I, we have these uh, uh, little matches once in a while where we're talking about who who guessed that right or who knew that right. And see, in churches, some of the same things happen. Hypocrisy can creep, creep in because, well, we know the right way to do things. Or perhaps what's happened is perhaps we've even bought into some unscriptural teaching because many of us are guilty of accepting what somebody told us without really doing the research. See, Paul today in this letter to Titus, he's issuing some warnings about the church, the people in the flock that are at Crete. That's an island of Greece. And you'll remember that Paul and Titus went there to establish and plant churches on the Isle of Crete. Well, Paul needed to leave. He had some more to do on his missionary journeys. Paul needed to leave, but Titus stayed there. He stayed on the island. Now, Paul wrote this letter back to Titus, and what he was telling him was he was giving him some, some ideas. He said, I want to give you a frame of reference what church is supposed to look like. You know, these are kind of the boundaries and the way things are supposed to work so that it does, so it brings glory to God and, and the gospel is advanced. He wanted to encourage him. But he also wanted to give him some instructions so if, in fact, things don't go well, you run into problems, then you're going to encounter some of those. So what do you do with those within the church body? So Paul's trying to explain to him some of those things. So today we're in chapter 1. We pick up at verse 10, if you have your scripture. And what I'm going to do is I'm not going to read the whole thing in, in, in one reading. I'm just going to kind of walk you through 
about the next six verses or so. It's a short reading today. So our first verse, Titus 1.10, picks up, and I'm in the new, I, I use the NIV typically, and this is what it says. There are many rebellious people. Now bear in mind, he's not talking to the people on the street, right? Because the reality is many times we expect the people that live in the world to act and make decisions like we do. It's not going to happen, is it? But the people inside the church, he's talking to the believers inside of the church. And so we see the criticism where he's talking about there are many rebellious people. See, 2,000 years ago or later, we still see that same thing played out in churches today. Now, Strong's Concordance gives some descriptive words of that word rebellious that we see in the Scripture. It says that other ways you can see that, going back to the Greek, are unruly. People are unruly. People are insubordinate. And people are disobedient. So he's telling about re- that, it, that the word rebellious, that that's what he's talking about. Since the beginning of man, there's been a battle. There's been a battle since the beginning of man. And the battle is this. It's self-will versus God's will. It's self-will versus God's will. And sadly, I'm here to report to you today that oftentimes self-will wins out. And as a result of that, even in the churches, we have rebellious people because self-will often wins. Some of the rebellious, the unruly, the disobedient people, some of them are like that on purpose. It's their intent. The person just really likes to stir things up. Maybe you've known some of those. You know, it just seems like they go out of their way to to create discord and just stir up a fight. They're people that it just seems like they just love, they just live for drama. And you know, teenagers, you're in school, you sure see that, right? You got people that just live for the drama, and we see that same thing in church. But see, it's my opinion that most people don't set out to be that way, that are rebellious, that are unruly, that are disobedient within the body of Christ. Now, some, I think, that if, if someone were to say them, let's say that it's a justifiable criticism, but if somebody were to say to them that you're re- rebellious, you're unruly, you're disobedient when it comes to the things of the church and, and the worship of God, some of the people that you would say that would absolutely be shocked. They would not have one idea that they are or even perceived to be that way. It just kind of happens. But at times, see, our, our self-will gets in the way of the work of the body of Christ. It becomes the distraction. It becomes the disharmony that happens. It slows the church down. It retards the church's work when self-will gets in the way of unity of the body. See, this isn't about you or me, because we're obviously fairly near perfect. We probably wouldn't be disobedient. We probably wouldn't be unruly, right? But I bet you can think of people just offhanded. I bet you can think of someone that maybe fits into that category where what they've done is they've let their self-will get in the way of God's will. 
They let self-will start to control their life rather than God's plan for their life. So let's go on. Let's see what Paul's telling us as we go on into verse 10. Because he starts, he said, For there are many rebellious people. It seems like Paul, again, was talking to the people inside the flock. But he's saying that there are some of you who are overtly rebellious. And you're full of meaningless talk and deception, Scripture says. I made a note that's on some of you, if you're on the U version, that uh, there's a Bible commentator named uh, Barclay from the mid mid 1900s, and he said this, idle talkers might be those that don't bring you a step closer to goodness. Idle talkers might be those that don't bring you a step closer to goodness. See, idle talk robs you of value. I don't, I don't know if you experienced this, if you, if you could rewind back to school days if you're out of school, but I, I can tell you two or three teachers by name specifically, and, and I, I admit, okay, I was in the half of the class that made the top half even be possible. I wasn't like the greatest student, but I do remember several teachers that I felt literally robbed me of some education. They had a chance to teach me something, but they, but they didn't do it. They elected to get lost in all this minutia and things, frankly, that didn't really contribute to my education. And see, that's the same thing idle talkers will do. You can have people that come up and do what I do. I, I hope I'm not guilty of this. Maybe I'm fooling myself, but, but you can have people that come up and do what I do, and they talk about all kinds of things. We talk about daisies and blue skies and Isn't the world wonderful? And we all love each other. But the reality is when we do that, we become these idle talkers and we actually rob people of the value of God's word. So then it goes on. He said, he said, especially those of the circumcision group. So understand that what he, what he's doing when he's talking about that, he's saying that there were people in the church at that time. And what they did is they wanted to import the laws of Moses. What they wanted to do is they wanted to import the laws of Moses and say, well, you know, really, we have to bring in a lot of these Jewish traditions for the church to be complete. See, they, 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 they believed, and these people that were rebellious, they tried to teach the fact that just Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection And that grace that followed was not enough. That in order to really be that complete believer, that complete Christian you needed to be, what you needed to do is you needed to bring in some of these Jewish rules and regulations in the process. Well, see, today's churches, unfortunately, we're often guilty of doing the same thing. We import traditions into the church that frankly, they don't add value, they, they, they don't even line up oftentimes, and they also can become distractions. Freedom in its early days as a church, we had a little bit of that. We've been blessed. We haven't had a lot of distractions. We've had a few through the years, but we've been blessed by the fact that we haven't had much of that. But, but what made me think about was some of the early days of the church and we were, we were kind of a formative body, okay, trying to get it together, but yet we still had some guidelines. We had a statement of belief. We already kind of knew where we were headed and what we believed in. 
But there were some of the people that were some of the early congregants that what they did is they would come along and say, well, you know, really, but the way we used to do it at the old place, the way we used to do it at the pastor-led church, but what we really need to do is to have this person in charge. And so we, 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 we fought off some of the things that we thought were not God's calling for freedom. Paul goes on and says in verse 11, he said, you know, when you're talking about these rebellious people, they must be silenced. Now, some of the talk we're going to read in the next few verses, frankly, it's pretty coarse, you know. Kind of reminds me of today's politics. But when, you, when, he, say, when he says it, he says it very bluntly. Now, they must be silenced. Well, if you're me, me first thing you think, you know, you grab them by the neck and say, you can't do that anymore. But that's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is that, that through reason, we need to help them understand, and maybe we're going to find out about through some plain talk in a minute too in Scripture. He said, but what we need to do is they're, they're sowing dissension and rifts and issues and confusion in the church. And what we need to do is we need to reason with them. We need to influence, not ignore them, not let them go on and doing what they're doing, but what we need to do is they need to be silenced, but we need to do that with reason. He goes on and he said in Scripture, he said, they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain, because he was being critical because there were some of the church that were pursuing dishonest gain, and that was part of what they were doing as they sowed these bad seeds. But see, dishonest gain isn't always financial. Dishonest gain sometimes is power. It's being... Uh, it's notoriety. It's so that people will notice you. They'll call you out and pat you on the head and just tell you what a wonderful Christian person that you are. And see, that's dishonest gain too. It's not always something that's financial. He goes on and he said, this is where he, he gets pretty plain spoken. He said, one of Crete's own prophets, and, and literally there was a, Crete, uh, a prophet from Crete that had made this quote, and all he's doing is he's pulling the quote down, and he says this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Woo! That's smoking, ain't it? I mean, you know, you, you're, you're talking about to a group of people, and I, and I would say that to you. I don't know how many of you would stomp out, but, but I mean, that's sharp talk. He's not mincing words when he says that. And then he goes on and he says, therefore rebuke, he's talking about the people that are, that are, that is, is this rebellious group again, that's what we're focused on. And then he says, therefore rebuke. Now that's strong language, because what he's saying is, is they need to be convicted of what they're saying that's wrong and why it's wrong. You need to convince them, you need to rebuke them, you need to convince them that they're, what they're saying and the confusion that they're stirring up in the body is wrong. You need to admonish them. You need to tell them that that's faulty thinking. He said, this saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now, we might say it this way. When you rebuke them, be plain about how you rebuke them, about what you believe. You know, I, I like listening to, to, to Justin and Eric when they're up here because they don't leave you a lot of imagination about what they think. Their, their, their speaking is plain. 
this is God's word, this is the path, and this is what happens if you get off of the path. And that's exactly what he's saying. He said, rebuke them sharply, be plain to them, so that they will be sound in their faith. So we think about what this rebuke is in context. See, the purpose of rebuke is what? He just told us the purpose of the rebuke is so that they will be sound in their faith. We don't criticize just to be criticizing. We criticize because we see them getting out too far and say, come back in here. You're outside of sound faith. See, when we rebuke them, it's not to prove a point. We don't rebuke people so that it, it, so that we can just be right. You know, it's my way. I'm confident that my thinking is the right way. That's not why we rebuke people. We don't rebuke them either because by rebuking them, we can show them that we're smarter. I know more scripture than you do. I can actually recite by heart the 12th chapter of John. Can you do that? See, that's not why we rebuke people. He said we rebuke people because... The purpose of it is so that they will be sound in their faith. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he says this. He said, and we'll pay no attention to Jewish myths. He's saying, rebuke them, tell them sharply, plainly, so that they'll be sound in their faith, and we'll pay no attention to the Jewish myths. So in other words, he's saying, I want you to say this to the body because you got this distraction. you got these people over here trying to tell them something else that they need to combine with the gospel and they pay, so that they'll pay no attention to the Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. See, if people have those corrupted views of things, they're, they're, their thinking is confused. I, I often will tell those close to me, I'll say, I can't even imagine how they think that's the right thing. You know, because to me it seems so clear, and I can't imagine why somebody else's thinking is confused. Well, admittedly, I probably need to look at my own house, right? because I'm sure mine's confused as well. But So how does that happen? How, how, do, how, do we, how do we start thinking in a corrupt fashion? How do we start to think and, and have these confused views of things? Well, it's really kind of where we started. It's really kind of the topic of what I'm talking about. It's, well, self-will, self-will creeps back in, for one. We humans have an amazing ability to bend God's truths to other things. I'm amazed how we can do that. We can, we can, we can bend God's will and his word, which is unchanging, and we can bend that so that it kind of looks like what we want to do anyway. We can bend his word and, and, and so, the things we feel, the things we should do, the things we want to do, the things that are more pleasing to the flesh, what we do is we start to bend God's word to accommodate our natural desires when we allow self-will to operate in our lives. Another thing that happens that allows self-will to come in is 
is the influence of others. I've said often to this group, be careful who you let in your head. Okay? Young people, listen to me. Listen to this. Be careful who you listen to. All right? Because what happens is if you're not careful who you listen to and you start taking in all this stuff that sounds right, it sounds good, well, that, yeah, that's logical, and you don't line that up with God's Word. Because what happens is too often we give people and others credit for knowing stuff. Let me say that again. Too often we give people credit for knowing stuff. Okay? Layman's way of saying this, but but the reality is that's what happens. We, we listen to somebody, and they sound so authoritative. They sound so knowledgeable. My goodness. Ah, that's a sharp guy. Or that woman really knows. Or that teacher, I mean, they know what they're talking about. But see, Scripture tells us in 1 John in the fourth chapter, it says, when you hear stuff, we are to test the spirits, Right? You know, kids, if you're in school, and some of you that have been through, you know what a litmus test is, right? What you do is you dunk this thing in some liquid, you pull it out, and you see if it changes colors. If you watch cops, I love cops and those shows, but you know what they do is they'll take a vial of stuff they picked up on the street. They wonder whether it's drugs or not. They'll pour this stuff in it, and it turns blue if it's a narcotic. Now, see... We have to do the same thing. Because when, when we look at how we conduct our life and what we believe and what our tenets are, we have to match them up. Well, the litmus test is God's Word. So if you bang it up against God's Word and it doesn't match, that should be enough of a litmus test to know, oh, I'm letting self-will drive my life. See, we can get bad information, and we get a lot of it. We can get bad information. And if you don't fact check it, then you'll operate believing that that bad information is accurate, especially if it comes by somebody that sounded like they knew what they were talking about. But see, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Because Satan is still alive and well. He wants you to operate, and he wants me to operate out of self-will. That's what he wants to happen. He wants, he wants to feed our self-will because if, he, if we do, then we know what it's going to do. It's going to take us down this other path. Boy, and I tell you what, things can, the world can look so good to us. It can look so good to us. It looks so promising. And we can have people whisper things in our ear that sound so wonderful. But the reality is Satan's alive and well, and you've got to be careful. You have to test the spirits and make sure that when you go down that path, that it's God's path. And he goes on in verse 16, and he said, See, these people that are rebellious, they claim to know God, but their actions, their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for doing anything good. So see, Paul's instructions are plain. But I, you know, I read this and I thought, well, but what do you do? What do you do with those people? If you have somebody that's rebellious, maybe it's in your church, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your friend group, 
But what do you do with them? So here's the question. Do you flush them? Do you flush them? Or do you, in fact, try to restore them? See, as believers, there's times that when things get too far afield, we have to shake the dust off our sandals. You know that scripture. But the reality is our first priority is not to flush them, right? But it's to restore them. In Galatians, in the sixth chapter, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, okay, let's figure out who we are, right? If someone who's caught in a sin, if somebody's rebellious, if they're living outside, if they're making a lot of bad choices, then those who live by the Spirit, I'm hoping that's about everybody in here, should restore that person gently. Not easy sometimes. Man, sometimes we want to bang them upside the head, choke them by the neck, all the things that seem to be fairly natural to me. But see, that's not what Scripture tells us to do. Scripture tells us that we're to restore that person gently. But he says, but also watch yourselves. It tells us in that Scripture, watch yourselves, lest you also be tempted. In 1 Peter, in the third chapter, he's talking about it, kind of the same thing. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Have you done that? I mean, you know, I think about people that are in messes, and maybe maybe I do it too often. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a doormat or something. But But the reality is that I think about when I see people in messes, I am sympathetic because I know that for many of them, they didn't get the shot that some of us got. They weren't raised in a Christian home. They weren't influenced by the right people. They chose or made choices perhaps to hang out with a different group. But it tells us in in 1 Peter, it says, we're to be like-minded. This body should be in unity. We should be sympathetic. We should love one another. We should be compassionate, and we should be humble. That's a tall order, isn't it? Most days, can you imagine getting up in the morning and say, okay, here's my laundry list today. Today, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to operate in unity. I'm going to be sympathetic when I run into people with different views, bad circumstances, hurt, people that, that disappoint me. We're going to love one another. I'm going to be compassionate, and I'm going to be humble today. That's a tall order for us as believers, but that's what Scripture tells us to do. So what do I want you to take away from this today? It's kind of a heavy thing because, you know, you listen to what we talked about today. He's talking about rebellious people and and saying, okay, you, you can't let that go on. So it's a heavy topic that we walk through. But this is the takeaway that I'd like for you to have today. But to ask yourself the question, what drives me? What drives me? Does self-will drive me? Me doing what I want to and nobody's going to tell me any different? Is that self-will? Is it going to tell me what to do? Or is what's going to drive me, is it going to be God's will for my life? Because we then take that and extrapolate and we say, well, if I'm going to make that decision 
And if that decision is going to be that I'm going to pursue God's will, not self-will, then I'm going to have to think about that and how I conduct myself every day on the street. Every day of my life, I'm going to have to think about how do I, how do I look and taste and smell like a follower of Jesus Christ. It's going to reflect itself in the choices I make. It's going to reflect itself in my priorities. Because if we're chasing self-will, remember what we said early, if we're chasing self-will more than we're chasing God's will, believe me, we can talk ourselves into anything. We're humans. And we have this ability to convince ourselves that whatever it is I want to do, whatever own natural desire I want to chase, I know that I can figure out how to, to, to rationalize that into, but that's okay. It reflects itself in our personality. It reflects itself in our tongue. It reflects ourself in my attitude, and it reflects itself in my humility. Am I driven by self-will or God's will? Karen was watching a show the other day, and it's called The Dog Whisperer. Anybody ever seen The Dog Whisperer on TV? So it's like this guy, and he gets all these terrible assignments with these dogs that don't do what they're supposed to. And like in eight seconds or something, he goes in there, and, and the people are amazed because what happens is they, they see this, this dog all of a sudden start to respond because he is making different choices. He's making different choices. And so, but boiled down, this is really the, the crux of what happens with him. In the dog whisperer, what he's, what he's done, this is my take anyway, he changes the dog's mind that they are no longer in charge. It's kind of like a dog on a leash. You know, one of the things we saw was, you know, he was saying a dog should never walk in front of you. It should always walk beside you or behind you. Yeah, I didn't know that. You see people getting pulled by their dogs all the time. But what he's saying, he's saying is that what you have to do is you have to convince the dog that the dog is not in charge, that the master is in charge. Now, doesn't that apply? Doesn't that apply with us? Because in our life, we want fiercely, and we fight fiercely to be in charge of our own lives. But Scripture says that we're to relinquish that. That's why I use the word surrender. We're to relinquish that. We're to surrender that and let the master be in charge. So that's a big question. I'm going to pray for us, but that's my question for you today. Are you comfortable that you're living in God's will more than you're living in self-will? And if you find yourself directed often by self-will, are you willing to make a change and decide that's not how I want my life to run? I don't want to run my life. I want God to run my life. I can guarantee you that if you'll do that and you'll let God run your life, the end product of your life will be much, much greater as a result. Bow your heads with me in the praise team. We'll close this out. Father, again, I thank you so much. Lord, I, you know, I think I can speak for the people in here. Our, our carnal self even doesn't want to be driven by our self-will.
We want to be driven, Lord, by your will for us. And I pray in the things we do, Lord, that, that we will. We'll think about, I'll think about my conduct. I'll think about, am I, do I spend any time in God's word so I even understand the foundation of my beliefs? Do I let too many of the wrong people, do I let the wrong people in my ear and in my head and influence my thinking? And so, Father, I pray that we, that we make a conscious choice not to do it. Lord, if there are people here today that understand more today than they did when they walked in, that they want Christ to be the head of their life, they've never made that surrender, Lord, I ask that, that they would get a hold of one of us elders. We're easy to find, easy to contact, Lord, because what we want is we want full surrender. We want you to be in charge. We don't want to be like the dog whisperer and, and, and have a failure. We want you to be the lead. We want to be beside you. We're following you as we go through this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.